That's a lot of fun. All right. We should probably pray after that. All right. Father, there's not one of us that doesn't understand that pull or lure of something that grabs our attention. And Lord, as we walk through this this morning, uh, there's some things that are deadlier than marshmallows that try to capture our attention as we uh, spend time thinking about it and through it. um, There's a bunch of different levels to this. And so we're going to take one slice of the pie and then you have freedom to highlight the other slices as you see fit. So we give that to you. Great hope in your name. Amen. All right, we're in the book of James. We're in a series called Shoe Leather Wisdom. And if you're new or visiting us, welcome. And uh, this morning, uh, if you want to turn there, we're in James chapter 1. And uh, it reads like this. We're reading verses 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. We're going to come back to this to this verse Next week, uh, and with the other verses later in James. So just know that. But we're going to spend our time on the second half of this passage. It says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. The topic of, of temptation is a huge one. Both its cause and nature have been a huge debate and study for as long as man has been around. Uh, today in our world, the, the study or field of psychology is one that tries to get that one figured out. And I'm pretty sure we won't solve all the questions surrounding temptation this morning, but we will take a look at it and study some of the ideas that Scripture gives us, and the hope is that it will be helpful. The Expositor's Bible Commentary points out that James uses a reproductive illustration in trying to explain the process of sin. So uh, he uses conception, then birth, and then when fully grown, it brings forth death. And the Bible's very clear that the wages or the, the payday, the result of sin is death. That when you grab that, um, it will kill you. The sher- serpent surely lied to Eve when he said, you shall not die. Right? It was an amazing deception. And James makes it clear that the process works its way from the inside out. This is the part that I want us to get this morning. In this again, he was echoing what his older brother Jesus taught. Jesus said this in Matthew 15. He says, but what comes? They were having a huge argument because the disciples had been eating grain and they hadn't washed their hands. And he says, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. So Jesus lays the cause of temptation on the fallen or or broken nature of the human heart. And he says, for out of the heart proceed these things. James follows this line of thinking by saying that each person is tempted when he is lured or enticed by his own desire. Often... When we think of temptation, we think of a force outside of us or something outside of us that we desire. So like a marshmallow or if I had a fishing pole or a fly rod and I had a fly in the end of it, we would think of that being the lure, right? But here James is talking about an internal uh, lure. Instead of the outward pull, the, the bait of the marshmallow, James focuses on the internal state that creates the pull or the attraction. Bible scholar A.T. Robertson entitled this, Snared by One's Own Bait. You ever done that? 
snared by one's own bait. James is highlighting the inner place in our spirit that incubates this appetite for something that is outside the will of God. We kind of massage it. We kind of roll it over in our thinking, much like those little kids rolled that marshmallow and sniffed it. And um, We create a place inside our heart that is a gap that this can grow in. Jesus identified this in the Pharisees as a spirit of greed and self-indulgence in Matthew 23. And unfortunately, many a believer has been destroyed by yielding to and giving into this inward pull. So I think it pays for us to consider closely this morning how that works. So what does the process look like? Well, let's use the breakdown that James gives, and we'll start with that. So the first thing James talks about is the process of conception. It says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed. And enticed there is... Uh, a good word, enticed by his own desire. And when desire, when it's conceived, so the idea here is that something, something is in the womb stage, right? Something is becoming pregnant here. Um, other things we would say is there's something perking, right? Or something's brewing, right? There's yeast, there's something starting to manifest itself. And uh, something's up is another way we'd say it. Something is twisted within our desires on the inside. So, in other words, this is taking place within the heart, uh, internally for us. And we are meditating on something we know is wrong. And it says that we are lured and enticed by our own desire. So I was looking for a biblical illustration of this, and the one I picked was Cain. You know the story. Let me read it to you. It says, Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. And so Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. We would say he's pouting, right? Throwing a, throwing a fit here. And then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now, there's a lot in this story we don't know. For example, uh, what, we don't know exactly what Cain brought. Uh, if you're reading through the Bible uh, with us through the year, you would have just read about the offerings of first fruits, which were acceptable. So it was okay that he brought... Uh, produce from the garden. Uh, so did Cain bring less? Was it, we, we don't really know. But what we do know is that God did not look with favor upon his offering, but he did look with favor upon his brothers. Big brother being shown up by little brother, that usually goes really well, right? No, not so much. And uh, Cain would be a person that we would say kind of wore his feelings on his shirt sleeve. Uh, some of us are really good poker players and nobody knows what's going on on the inside. And others of us, right, we just, as soon as something hits, it shows up on our face. And Cain was that kind of a person that what was happening inside instantly manifested on his face. And what we find is something happening in the heart of Cain. Outwardly, his face registers his anger, but it's what is going on in his heart that's truly significant. 
And God tries to coach him, all right, out of the internal pull he's feeling by identifying the problem and saying, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? He was trying to get Cain to stop that pull, that thought, at the conception stage. Move away from that here. Don't take that any farther. Cain, what he's saying, be careful. Sin is crouching right at your door and it desires to have you, but you must rule over it. NIV would say you must master it. And we all know the battle of trying to master our thoughts or emotions and how they can scoot out from under us. Why is the temptation to rage so deadly? Well, we, because Cain didn't master it, it ended up with him murdering his brother. We all know that story well. One generation removed from the garden and murder enters the human race. And murder has never left us. Now stop and think for a second this morning. How would history be different if Cain had responded to the Lord's coaching and killed that thought at the conception stage and it hadn't gone any farther? Just think about that. How would history be different if Cain had killed that thought at the conception stage and not taken it any farther? That's why Scripture is so strong on us capturing our thoughts and gaining mastery over them. In 2 Corinthians, if we're looking for an antidote for this, the antidote is to capture our thoughts by the power of the Holy Spirit. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Now most of us, when this passage is when we're thinking about it, think about the outward battle, the outward, uh, the battles out there, the pressures out there, the strongholds out there, and I have to battle those things out there. But think about, think of it internally. Think about the battle that goes on in your flesh within your own body, within your own mind. And read this with an internal perspective. Let me read it again. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Any of us have any strongholds that come down the generational train from our parents or grandparents that we've tried to break? This battle of strongholds, and of course prayer is a huge weapon in this that he's talking about, right? Has the divine power to destroy the strongholds that hold us captive internally. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Any arguments or lofty opinions raised in your mind against obedience towards God? I know they do in mine. And every thought, take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Here's the point. If you don't check it here, then the temptation goes from conception and it actually goes to the second stage. And now sin, uh, says James, is given birth. It says, then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Just as a couple makes love and the natural result, a child is born, so if we give in to what the Bible calls our old or fallen nature, sin is birth. 
And the biblical illustration of this one is uh, an interesting character, and I'm using Balaam for this one. Uh, many of us remember Balaam as the guy who beat his donkey, and then the donkey talked to him, right? And it's kind of a funny story, and we kind of laugh about it, and, you know, being Balaam's donkey, and there's other modifications of that phrase, right? And, uh, and, and it's kind of that. But the story of Balaam is intriguing. And why it's intriguing is that what you find is that Balaam is a prophet of the Lord, and he speaks for the Lord. And Balak, uh, uh, king of Moab, sees Israel come into the land. And so he wants to curse them so they can beat him in battle. And so Balak goes to get Balaam. And he says, come and curse this people for me. And he, so he sends a, a, a retinue, a, a, some uh, representatives of his government. And they come with gifts. And they said, you come. And Balaam says, let me go pray about it. I'll come back to you in the morning. And he comes back in the morning and says, I can't say a word against that people. Just, you're going to have to go back. Even if he were to offer me silver and gold, I wouldn't be able to take it. Balak isn't set with that answer. So he gets a bigger, more impressive uh, ambassador's group. And they go and they say, you've got to come. And he goes and prays again. And he says, nah, even if he offered me his entire castle of silver and gold, I couldn't do it. Right? And so when you're... Thinking of Balaam, he sounds like a really godly guy. He sounds like a pretty righteous guy and he, he tracks pretty straight. But then later on you find out that in the course of all this, he seeks the Lord and the Lord tells him you can go. Uh, and on the way to Balak is this story of where the donkey is, sees the angel Lord. He's waving, trying to get away and he presses it against the wall, crushes Balaam's foot. Balaam goes in the field, sits down and Balaam just beats his donkey to tar and then the donkey says, hey, have I ever been in the habit of doing this to you? Right? You know you're in trouble when a donkey's talking to you, right? And, and then Balaam's eyes are open and he sees the angel of the Lord and he realizes, I'm dead meat. I'll go back if you want me to. And God says, no, go, but only say this. What God was doing there was he was intercepting something that was already in Balaam that doesn't come out in the text till later on. There, there was a good part to Balaam and there was a bad part to Balaam. And God was trying to intercept the bad part because he knew that sin had been birthed in him as a man. So Balaam goes and he, he prophesies and instead of cursing Israel, Balaam blesses them four times. And in the last one, he actually sees the coming of Jesus as Messiah. Here's what he says. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob, and a scepter will rise out of Israel, and he will crush the foreheads of his enemies. Can you imagine that? He saw that way back in the day. But again, God had caught something in Balaam that was wrong. And what was wrong was Balaam's heart. How do we know that there was something wrong with his heart? Well, he did bless Israel. He did four times pronounce blessing on Israel. Right? And obeyed the Lord that way. But later on what we find out is that uh, he was the same one who told Moab how to mess Israel up by having their women seduce the men and cause massive havoc in the incident known as Baal of Peor. So he did his official religious thing, did it right, but then later behind the scenes said, hey, you're never going to get them that way, but here's a way you could get them. If you really want to, you, you could seduce them. And, and get them over and 
uh, get into Moloch worship and that's where they cast children in the arms of idols that were on fire and all that stuff. And, and so they, it broke out in the camp and, and the camp went crazy. And, and then this is the story of where a man and woman actually came running through the camp, ran into a tent to shack up together and Phineas took a spear and drove the spear through the guy and the gal and stopped the play. It's an intense story. Okay? Uh, and it's, a, it's a quite intense story. And God called Phineas's acts really righteous. And what you find out is that then Israel attacks Balak, and then not only is Balak in his kingdom overthrown and killed, but Balaam is killed as well. All right? Because he had operated on a on a what we would call a divided nature, divided heart. It had birthed sin in him. Right? And this is a picture for us. This is a picture for us of those of us at church. And we're here this morning looking really righteous and we do the Lord's things. But during the week, we're cultivating something that shouldn't be cultivated. In Balaam's case, it was immorality. How did he know how to counsel immorality? Because he was participating in it himself, more than likely. He, told, he knew exactly what to tell him how to do and what would get him. Why? Because he was practicing it. And so Balaam was divided. Sin had been birthed in him and it was wrecking what... It didn't mean God couldn't use him. It just simply meant he was starting to totter out of balance and eventually it cost him his life. You know, and we can sin and, and uh, get away with it, but um, it doesn't always work, Right? This could very be well, well be us say in church, in church this morning, but cherishing something sinful at the same time. What um, is the antidote for this? The antidote for this is to put off the old man and put on the new man. Uh, this is both found in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3. I grabbed the Ephesians 4 passage, but it's, Paul's talking that assuming you've heard of him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus... To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through, and here's the term Paul uses. What's the word up there? Deceitful desires. We have to be on guard for deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Here's what... uh, Scripture's trying to say. You can't have both at the same time. So it'd be like, let's say it's a, a hot... Um, muggy day, you're out in the yard digging up ground and dirt and all that stuff and you're just a hot putrid mess by the time you come in. You have a big event that night. Maybe it's a business thing or maybe it's a date night um, with your wife or with your husband or or maybe you're going to go hang out with a bunch of friends and you're short on time. So what you do is you don't really take your shower wash up. You just throw some cologne on, put a brand new shirt over and go out to the party. Right? It won't be too long before the people at the party... Notice something. Oh, right? What's the problem? You look like you have new clothes on, but what do you smell like? The old man, right? You ever heard uh, people say, uh, man, I liked them till I got close to them, and then I didn't like them so much because they started to see our old man or our fallen nature? And what Scripture is saying is we have to get to the point where we wash ourselves, right? Take a shower. You don't put the new clothes on until you take a shower. Once you take the shower, you can put the new clothes on. And what's that process called in Scripture? That's called confession. 
If we get to the second stage where there's actual sin, then we've got to be in a place where we confess that sin. We have to get washed by the blood of Christ to get cleansed of that so that we can put the new man on and walk away from the old man. Balaam liked to wear both at the same time. And it was a a deadly combination uh, for him. And speaking of that, it's really important uh, to talk just a minute here about the power of a good conscience. In 1 Timothy, Paul says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. We don't talk about conscience much these days anymore. Um, but that used to be, I always remember the picture of the little devil on one shoulder and the little angel on the other shoulder and they would talk and then the person was trying to decide which voice they were going to listen to, Right? Um, if you go back real old school, old Disney, Jiminy Cricket. Remember Jiminy Cricket and Pinocchio? And he was Pinocchio's conscience. And remember how Pinocchio tried to get rid of his conscience. And a conscience can be brought to life or a conscience can be squashed. Um, it can be killed. Uh, so in... Um, Oh gosh, I lost the passage here. Sorry. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits. There's that term again. In other words, there's a deception that we are prone to that if we don't pay attention to them, bursts sin and then it brings forth death. It says, deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences have been seared. Uh, the best way to, uh, gals, you would know this from uh, curling irons or irons, right? Wow, right? And you, you kind of brand yourself. It says our consciences can be seared like that or they can be deadened or dulled. or uh, taken on. So the goal is to craft a good conscience, not an overactive conscience that's way out of tilt, not one that is dead and can't respond to sin, but one that accurately responds when you're thinking of doing something wrong. Uh, Rob Henry, our senior youth director, he gave announcements this morning, was saying this week that if you do something wrong and you feel bad, that's good. Right? And we've forgotten that. We've forgotten that our conscience is supposed to help us make choices towards godliness and towards the new man and that it's supposed to alert us when the old man is trying to rise up on the inside of us. Well, if we don't take care of it at the conscience or the confession stage, then we go into the third stage, and that's the maturation of sin. It says, James says, when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. The biblical illustration I picked for this is Ananias and Sapphira. You know that story well. It says, Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. They were copying something that Barnabas had done. But with a twist. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. And then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? Notice Peter identifies the internal issue that's gone on here, Ananias has bought into a plan that came from Satan and he lied to the Holy Spirit and you've kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold and after it was sold wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? 
This is the old devil made me do it, right? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. And then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later. So there's a second chance here, right? Uh, Apparently his wife didn't know. Somehow she hadn't heard. And she comes walking in to talk to Peter, assuming her husband must be off on an errand somewhere, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. And then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard it, all who heard about these events. Now, if you think about this, what Ananias and Sapphira did really isn't all that much different than stuff we do. Right? I mean, we've all fibbed on stuff. We've all fudged on certain things. And we've rationalized it or justified it. Most of the time, people don't fall down dead. So we kind of think, oh, I get away with it. Right? But notice how Ananias and Sapphira are stuck to their plan. Okay? They were not going to budge from the plan that they came up with, even though the Holy Spirit warned them that they were lying and that what they were doing is wrong. They decided to stay with it anyways. And the point is, is that that cost them their life. Now, as I mentioned, we've sinned like that, but we're walking around going, well, we haven't died yet and nobody else has, so it can't be that bad, right? We must be okay, and it really isn't going to uh, affect us. But there's a lot of kinds of death besides just physical death. There's financial death. We call that bankruptcy. There's emotional death, right? We say someone lost their mind. Somebody, they're not the same anymore. They've, they've tipped, right? Uh, there is the death of hope. Our, our culture is being swallowed up in despair and depression right now. There's the death of a marriage. We call that divorce. There's the death of the future. I, my inheritance, my rewards are, are taken away. And there's spiritual death. I may be walking and alive as a human, but spiritually I'm dead inside my heart. There's a lot of different kinds of death that can happen. And here's the point. Satan doesn't care how he kills us. He just cares that he kills us. Right? The mode he really isn't too fussy about. If he can't get you on one, he's going to try and get you on the other. So if we're in a place where, like Ananias and Sapphira, we are full-blown tilt into something, and we're not going to do, what's the biblical antidote for that? And the biblical antidote is repentance and renunciation. This is where you get on your knees and you beg God and tell Him what you're doing is wrong and you have to turn. Jesus says this in Revelation 3. He's talking to one of the churches. He says, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you've received and heard. Keep it and repent. Right? If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you'll not know at what hour I will come against you. Right? What do we have for recourse if we're caught where sin is full blown? Well, we can repent and we can renunciate. Reject it. I reject that 
thought. I reject that action. I reject that pattern. And I'm going to walk away from it. Now, just because we reject it doesn't mean we, take, we, we can limit the consequences. Right? A lot of us, uh, the, another illustration used in Scripture is planting. Right? And it says, uh, be sure that you will reap what you sow. That's a planting illustration. So a lot of us reap stuff and then we play, pray for crop failure. Right? That it never sticks its heads up. But uh, it, it, it tends to. Scripture says, be sure your sins will find you out. And that's why we should be a people of repentance. We should come before God and throw ourselves at Him. Now, I want to end on a positive note and I don't want uh, Satan to be able to beat us up and take us out. So the question this morning then would be, how do you get a good conscience? Right? If a good conscience really helps and if a good conscience can help us cut it off at the thought level or a good conscience can help us at the confession stage where we need to go to somebody else and say, hey, look, I'm blowing it and I, I've got to talk to somebody. I've got to, I've got to uh, pray with someone. Or we get to the full-blown repentance mode where you know, it's already carried out, but I've got to come. What I did was wrong, and I've got to renounce it. How do we get a good conscience? Well, in Romans 1, or in Romans 12, 1 and 2, it says this, and you know these verses well, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, we sung about His mercy this morning, right? We talked about how His mercy removes our shame. And we talked about how when we come back, he washes us. And in that Hebrews passage, it talked about Jesus also was tempted just like us. So therefore, he can understand the battle. And if we turn to him, and all of these things are turned back to Jesus, turn back to Jesus, turn back to Jesus. And when you get sideways, turn back to Jesus. Satan tries to tell us, you can't go back. Your sin's too bad. He can't forgive that. Or even if he forgives it, you'll never be clean again. You'll never be washed again. That's not true. Jesus knows. Go back to Jesus. Right? Go back, cutting off the thoughts. Go back with confession. Go back with repentance. Go back to the Lord. He says, In view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, part of your body is what? Your mind. Right? Give your mind to God as your living sacrifice. Your mind works right now. Okay? You don't have Alzheimer's. You don't have dementia. It works. Use it while you can. Because there may come a day when it won't. Right? Use it while you can. Use your mind. Give it to God as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. What's the pattern of this world? To rage against God's authority. To rage against His presence. Right? Don't conform to that. But be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. That's one of the great things about reading through the Bible is if you read the, you get the whole picture of what God thinks. You get the whole picture of how he looks at it and you start to think like him and you start to relate to things like him and your conscience starts to develop along those tracks of thoughts that God lays out in Scripture. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. What does that mean? Well, then you'll know whether you can have the marshmallow or not. Right? Sometimes he'll say yes. Sometimes he'll say no. Right? Sometimes he'll say wait. Sometimes he'll say others may, you may not. Do you like that when he does that? No, no, that's a bummer, right? But you will know because you have a good conscience. Right? 
And so James is talking about the need to have a really good conscience. We're going to put this against the backdrop now next week of the whole issue of the goodness of God, right? Because remember, James says, when someone is tempted, let them not say they are tempted by God because God cannot be tempted by evil. We're going to look at that and we're going to look at the goodness of God uh, next week. But for this week, which stage are you at? Can you identify any one of those three that that Jesus is talking to you and saying, hey, kill that thought. Just cooperate, kill that thought. Don't, Don't go there anymore. Or, you know what? It's confession time. It's okay. Just come to me. It's confession time. Or you're at the stage of, you already blew it. It's already giving birth. It's already producing stuff. And he's saying, you know what? Come repent. Come repent. Cast all your cares on me because I care for you. If one of those stages apply, then my encouragement would be to cooperate with the Lord this week at whatever stage he identifies for you. I'm going to ask the team to come up. Let's pray this morning before we go to worship. Father, we live in a, um, a deceitful culture. A culture that says you don't matter and a culture that says we can do anything we want. A culture that says we're our own bosses of our bodies and that only we have the right to our bodies and nobody else does. Uh, a culture that says you don't exist and a culture that says you don't, you're not important. And all of us know what it's like with that internal sticky, sweet pull inside that says this is better than what God has for you. And Lord, all of us know times when we resisted that and also we know times when we have grabbed it. And your word is very true. What it's produced is death. None of us are innocent in that realm. As we've walked through this this morning and and talked about a good conscience and um, how temptation works and how to fight it, obviously, again, it's only one small slice, Lord, of that that pie. There's there's so many other levels. But for this morning, uh, with what we covered, if it spoke clearly, then I pray that you'll find a good response from us in that. You'll find us turning back to your Son, back to your son, back to your son, seeking the strength of your spirit, seeking the power of your word, and lining back up with what we know is true. And we ask for your favor in that. Uh, We're pretty weak. Please give us your strength. And we ask this in your name. Amen.